pleasure uh, to be here, and, and it's just been really wonderful to get to know all of you this weekend. I uh, want to give my thanks especially to the uh, pulpit committee, the session, the diaconate, just for all their care and love and support uh, this weekend. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, after service, just, just pull me aside, grab me and say hi. I would love to get to know you and get to introduce myself to you. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a great way of just being awkward together. So let's, let's get to know each other in that way. Um, you know, one of the words that kept on coming up during this process is the word community uh, and the strength of the community here at City of Hope. And just as an outsider who has had a limited window to, to see it, I, I can truly say, I want to let you know that I, I have felt that so strongly over the last couple of days here. So thank you so much for all of your hospitality for your love and care for this church and this body. And uh, thank you even for the awkward questions. I, I never knew that one of the interview questions I'd be asked is, what is the last movie that I've cried watching? And so, um, you know, I just, the opportunity to be very vulnerable. Um, you know, one of the best ways that we can get to know each other better is to go into God's Word together, because as we see ourselves in light of Scripture, we can see the Gospel clearly and how it shapes us in the light of its reality. So um, before we dive into the sermon today, could, could we all pray together? Let's pray. Uh, Father, be with the preaching of your word as you remind us of Christ, his saving work, his wonderful grace, his transforming power, working through us through the Holy Spirit. Stir our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths to love you more because of your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Today's passage that we read in Mark 7 is, is a beautiful one, but, it, but it's often overlooked because it's a story that could really be only described as a very unusual conversation. It's a story that you've probably passed through thinking to yourself with, with more questions than answers, and, or maybe you've even just looked at this and sort of just glossed over this passage, if you've ever read the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, without really giving it much thought. You know, uh, growing up as, as children, we often hear stories that we don't understand the main message of until much later. Um, I'd like to share with you, if you'll indulge me, one story that I was often told as a young child and who, whose point that I completely missed. Um, I'd like to preface this story by saying that this is a story in the Korean folk tradition, which meant that these stories were often incredibly guilt-laden and almost comically tragic in nature, solely designed to, to sort of guilt children into proper behavior. Um, so let, let me just share this. What do I mean by this? All right, so it's a story that my mom would tell me all the time growing up. Long ago, there was a green frog that lived with his widowed mother in a small pond. The green frog never listened to his mother. When she told him to do something, he always did the opposite. If his mother told him to play in the hills, he would play in the river. If she told him to go up, he went down. If she told him to go left, he went right, and so forth. The mother frog was worried what she would do with her son. He caused her so much distress and embarrassment. Why can't he be like other frogs, she said to herself. Why can't he respect his elders and do what he is told? Eventually, the mother frog was growing old, and she worried so much that she became sick. But even then, the little green frog did not change his ways. Finally, when the mother frog knew she was going to die, she called her son to her side. She wanted a proper burial on the mountain, 
And since she knew that the green frog would do the opposite of what she told him, she chose her words carefully. I don't have much longer to live, she said. When I die, do not bury me on the mountainside. You must bury me on the bank of the river. Four days later, the mother frog passed away, and the green frog was terribly sad. He blamed himself for her death, and he was sorry for all the heartache he had caused her. He resolved finally to listen to his mother's instructions. I always did the opposite of what she told me to do when she was alive, he told to himself. But now I will do exactly as she has told me. So even knowing that it was unwise, the green frog buried his mother by the river. When the monsoon rains came that summer, the river rose higher and higher. It flowed over its banks and washed his mother's grave away. The green frog sat in the pouring rain by the riverbank, crying and weeping for his mother. And that is why, to this day, the green frogs cry when it rains. <laughs> now, you have to remember, I'm seven years old, okay? Right? And, you know, as laughably heavy-handed and manipulative guilt this fable was, when I heard the story growing up, I thought to myself, well, that's just a sad story with a sad ending, but uh, I don't have to know what this has anything to do with me, right? You see, I didn't get what my mother was trying to say. I was just being a disrespectful child who was, wasn't listening to her and that one day I would regret it. That message was completely lost on me. You see, even the story was there designed to help see myself in it. I didn't see how this could have anything to do with me. The words were there, but it left bearing no fruit. And I suspect that stories like the one that we read in Scripture today can seem like green frog stories to us. Why would a discussion about mealtime between children's and their pets lead, lead to a faith that presents a miraculous healing? I mean, this seems on the surface a very sort of strange and odd and illogical way for Jesus to operate. But this is actually here today a perfect story to give attention to four things today, four ways that we can see ourselves in this story. So for all you type A note takers, here are the four points. Um, a... This story tells us what what divides us. Two, how Jesus responds to our division. Three, how Jesus unites us. And four, how we respond to Jesus. So what, what divides us, how Jesus responds to our division, how Jesus unites us, and how we respond to Jesus. So 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 let's start with what divides us. Um if you've ever spent enough time reading the Gospels, you will realize that Jesus often goes against our expectations of what we think he should say and how he should act, especially in Mark's gospel. All throughout Mark's telling of of the accounts of the life of Jesus, Mark's focus, right, in in Jesus feeding the 5,000, his dealing with his disciples, his responses to the crowds, Jesus is constantly subverting everyone's expectation of what it means to belong and especially when it means to belong to the kingdom of God. And Mark here is trying to show us that the standard that we use to separate ourselves, divide ourselves, aren't necessarily the values of Christ's kingdom. So here we arrive in Mark chapter 7, and let me just give you a little bit of background here. In chapter 7, Jesus is exhausted. How many of you can relate, right? Herod is trying to kill him. 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees are plotting his destruction. His own family doesn't understand him. His disciples are driving him up the wall. And on top of that, his name is getting very famous in Capernaum. And he's just overexposed and everything just wants something from him. He's, he's being pulled from every single direction demanding from him. How many of you can kind of relate to that here this morning? So what does Jesus do? He goes into a Gentile land, specifically Tyre and Sidon. This is roughly about 50 miles away from Capernaum. Both of these towns, Tyre and Sidon, are seaport towns. So what is Jesus doing? He's going to the beach to rest, right? See, going to the beach is a biblical concept, okay? Uh, And as the text says, he wishes for himself not to be known, but it's too late. The fame of Jesus has already spread. And here we see the humanity of Jesus on display. He's, he's tired. You know, he wants his introvert time. <laughs> he wants his period of rest. He wants to get away from all this surrounds him and take some time off. And, and as an aside, uh, this is why rhythms of rest are so important to us as the body of Christ. This is why many of us refer to this day on Sunday as the Sabbath day, a day where we rest from the pressures and trials and discouragements from our jobs, our world around us, and and enter into a place of worship, of restoration. Now, if Jesus needs this, then surely you and I do as well. This is a time every Sunday where we can find rest here, and I hope that you, you, you all can here this morning. But it's more than beachside views and port town harbors that Jesus is getting after. His rest is also fulfillment of Scripture's understanding of the Old Testament promises. You see, Tyre was a city located near modern-day Lebanon that was conquered by Joshua in the Old Testament. And this city of Tyre was actually supposed to be a part of the land of Israel. But if you read the book of Joshua, you will know that Israel was actually never truly able to subdue the land, and it became a Gentile nation. It became a pagan nation. So instead of Tyre, which was supposed to be a part of God's kingdom, it divided from it. So Tyre became the home of Jezebel in Elijah's day and brought about pagan prophets and practices that were a constant thorn in the flesh of Israel. During the years of silence between the Old and New Testament, Tyre would later fight wars against the Jews, and they were called the the bitter enemies. That was sort of the label and the name that they had. So you see, Jesus even going to Tyre would have been offensive to many fundamentalist Jews. Why would you go there? Doesn't he know the types of people that live in Tyre? Doesn't he know what they believe? Why would anyone go to Tyre? But you see, Jesus realizes not what the city of Tyre had become, but what the city of Tyre was supposed to be. This was a nation that was once promised the blessings of the Messianic age in Psalm 87, verse 4. You know that song, All My Fountains Are In You? That song is talking about the city of Tyre in it. This city, Tyre, as with every city, Charleston, South Carolina, with Columbia, Maryland, is supposed to be a part of God's kingdom, of the new heavens and the new earth. And where Joshua had failed to gain conquest into the kingdom of God with the sword, Jesus comes in and conquers it with this invitation to the Syrophoenician woman. 
Jesus, by entering into Tyre, was entering into his inheritance and, and saying that the people of God is no longer this designated nation of Israel, but rather a people that encompasses every nation, tribe, tongue, language, ethnic background, and place. In other words, whatever we think divides us as a people, we are reminded that we are made in the image of God and have a citizenship that is greater than anything that we could label ourselves as. We have a citizenship in heaven. So before the conversation with the woman even starts, there is a dividing wall here, right? Politics, societal expectations, religious belief, all right? We have Jesus in one corner, an Israelite rabbi in a hostile territory seeking refuge, entering into a conversation with a Syrophoenician woman. So Mark is setting up you up here to see something that you should expect that this conversation shouldn't go well at all. Now, what's a Syrophoenician? definitely not an Israelite, definitely not perceived to be a part of the people of God. She was a Canaanite, and well, you know how those Canaanites are. They worshiped Baal intently, and part of their belief was that the fertility, a.k.a. your child, how many children you have, and the health of said children was a marker and a blessing and a sign of God's favor. Well, strike one. Strike two, she was likely widowed. And the passage doesn't even speak of a husband who was present, which back in that era meant a level of destitution due to the secular hierarchy. Strike three, her daughter was demon-possessed. A scarlet letter that supposedly, that God must have punished her for something that she did. Strike four, Matthew's version of this story in, chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 15 we actually see that she's not really the nicest of individuals. You see, Mark uses this language that he's, she is begging Jesus to heal her daughter, but, it, but see, Matthew gives us a little bit more insight here. It's actually more of a disrespectful, annoying request. So think about how outlandish this all is here, all right? Put yourself in the room where this is happening and see how many dividing walls there are and see how rude it would seem for this woman to come up here and ask for grace. She's not a believer. She's a cursed pagan woman from the city of Tyre. And she, by the world's viewpoint, got what she deserved by having a demon-possessed daughter. How could she ever think that someone so far away from as her could receive grace? Doesn't she know how far away she is? So how... Does Jesus respond to this division? Or our second point, how does, how does Jesus respond to our division? Let me start this by just simply just having you think about this. How would you react if you were Christ? If you were Jesus here, how would you respond to this woman? Perhaps it might be better to ask yourself, how would you respond to people that you perceive to be outside of your camp, your way of thinking? your take on life? How do you respond when people undeserving of grace come before you? What's your inclination? What's your heart and disposition to them? If you're anything like me, maybe your response here would be defensive and angry. Now, who, do you, who do you think you are? Or maybe you would respond passive-aggressively, maybe irritated, maybe annoyed, 
maybe you say, okay, I'll heal you, but, but you place conditions and attachments to show your authority over them, to show that you, you own them in this moment. And all of these responses would show the, the ugliness of our own hearts. You know, contrary to popular belief, and we've seen this in our world and in our hearts and just in the flesh and how the devil pulls us, contrary to popular belief, we, we really don't want unity, do we? we? We want uniformity. To our own selfish thoughts, our mindset and behavior, not so that God could be glorified, but so that we could say, we're the good guys. We're the ones that are right. The divide in the story is to highlight the tension between Jews and Gentiles, or really, us versus them. And at this moment, Jesus would have been expected to launch into this justified anger, hatred, separation. Jesus would have been right to have been frustrated at this pagan woman and be done with her. Anyone who was in, in this part of the story would have expected nothing less. That is, after all, what people with religious and cultural differences do. They shout at each other, declare themselves superior, make demands of each other, then declare that they cut off their opponent, delete them off their friend list on Twitter. That's, that's justification. You are justified. But how does Jesus respond to what divides us? Look at verse 27 again. Jesus says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, when you read that, that, that just seems weird, doesn't it? This woman is asking for life and death for her daughter, and yet Jesus here is talking about the dinner table and who gets first rights to food. Like, like what's going on here? And, and more than that, did, did Jesus just compare this woman's request to that of a dog begging? I mean, that, that's pretty dehumanizing, right? What, what, what's happening here? Um. This is sort of like a green frog moment, right? This is a phrase and, and a statement from Jesus that has caused much scrutiny, and some interpreters believing that Jesus' words are shaming the woman to show her how unworthy her request is. Um, some commentators suggest that Israel is the children and Gentiles are the dogs, and Jesus' ministry was to Israel's first. And, and some of these interpretations, while they may have some merit, although I would categorically reject the, the first one that I mentioned, um, I believe there's something deeper going on here. And uh, there's some biblical commentators and myself, I would agree that there's much more here that what meets the eye. Jesus isn't responding out of frustration or belittling her personhood as a Gentile. You see, what Jesus is actually doing is presenting this woman with a question to show her and demonstrate to her that he understands exactly who she is and where she's coming from. You see, this unworthy request from the Syrophoenician isn't maybe as unworthy as what appears on the surface. You know, in Matthew 15, where the story is recounted, we see some additional context. She says to Jesus, have mercy of me, O Lord, son of David. O Lord, son of David. Now, if you're one of the original people reading this gospel, that would stop you dead in your tracks. You see, this quote-unquote woman, by saying, O Lord, Son of David, joins a very exclusive group of people. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, the man possessed by a demon, the woman who had a blood discharge, the leper, the paralytic. What do all of these people have in common? 
In Mark's gospel, they're the only people who really understand who Jesus is. Why would the Syrophoenician call this rabbi Lord? Why would she even mention his lineage in the line of the son of David unless she knew that he was the king of kings that could bring her to the kingdom of God? Why else would she go through the trouble to find Jesus, even though Jesus desired to be hidden, unless she knew more about the power of Christ and his identity way more than the people that were supposed to? And this is what leads to Jesus' response. You see, he's dealing with this tension in the room right now between how the world sees this woman in front of Jesus and her request and how this woman sees the world in light of Jesus. And so you see, she already understands what the crowds around her don't. What divides a person from grace is not their ethnic, social, political background. It's not whether they're married or not. It's not whether they have children or not. It's not their stance on the social issue of the day. It's not whether they're keeping up with the Joneses or or pretending to keep up with a particular lifestyle or trying to stay relevant on social media or, or maintaining the average median income. It has nothing to do with these realities. It has everything to do with the fact that what makes you deserving of grace is your faith as Christ as King. So Jesus' response is, is here is not meant to denigrate her. It's rather a tongue-in-cheek question that is meant really for everyone around her. It's the green frog story for the, all of us. Jesus is asking her, you know, why should someone who is viewed as a Gentile receive the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom? Don't you know that dogs shouldn't take the children's bread? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is, is using this situation to ask those around her, who do you think deserves the blessings of God. So the tension here is palatable, right? Here's your enemy begging for help, pleading for mercy, and Jesus is saying, you know, a typical Israelite would ask you this question, what say you? Or maybe to put it even in greater relevance to here in this room today, maybe someone who is in your life who doesn't deserve any mercy comes and asks you for some. They have done nothing but harm and destroy and slander you. They have been nothing but a thorn in your flesh and annoyance at your side. They have done nothing but to malign, hurt you, destroy destroy your credibility and reputation. And now out of the blue, in your moment of greatest weariness and fatigue, they ask you for grace. What say you? Jesus, with this response, is inviting her to speak what he already knows that she knows that it's faith in what Christ has done. Not your accolades, not your background, not your shame, not your guilt, not your faults that make you worthy of grace. It's all about what Christ has done for you. It's about knowing there is someone else, you see, that makes you deserving. And that someone is Jesus. The gospel proclaims to us this reality that we so often forget in the, the reaction sort of conversation of today, that, that our acceptance isn't based on the tribes that we claim to be loyal to, or the rigorous nature of our rhetoric, or how we project ourselves to be one of the good guys. It's about falling at the feet of Jesus and exposing our greatest weaknesses, our sin, our shame, and asking him to give us the grace that we don't discern and could never have earned. Our familiar status, our birthright, or even in the story, even in the way that we ask Christ to heal us in the first place, it's simply about faith 
in Christ's power and not yours. This is why the woman responds the way that she does. Our third point, what unites us. Look at, look at the worthy response from the woman. Look at these verses again. Yes, Lord. So you see, she gets it. Yet even the dogs under the table eats the children's crumbs. This is so good. And it's so brilliant how she responds because uh, there's something beautiful about the force of Mark's gospel and the way that Mark is telling the story that lands at this moment. Up until chapter 7, Jesus had been telling parables left and right. And he's always met with confusion, misunderstanding, someone wanting to explain it, someone, someone who just doesn't get what he's trying to convey. No one figures out what Jesus is saying without Jesus saying it first. No one is able to decipher his words. And yet for the very first time in Mark's gospel, this supposed unworthy woman with this supposed unworthy request is the first person to give a worthy response to Jesus. She is the first person in Mark's gospel to actually understand the teachings of Christ. Can you not see the glory of what, what Mark intends this to mean for you and I today? You see that in faith and in faith alone, there is no one who is far beyond the reaches of God's grace. That what unites all of us here today is not our preferences, but faith and trust that Christ heals us from our sins through the cross and gives us a far greater grace than what we deserve. That what unites us isn't whether or not we've been good enough to earn Christ's blessings, but that we're all broken people who have received the bread of life from the table of the Lord. City of hope, are we united around this Christ today? So consider then what this means for us. Our fourth point here, how should we respond to Christ's grace? If what this response of faith by the Syrophoenician woman is true, then what does this mean about how we respond to such a divided world? If even a Syrophoenician could receive grace, then surely this salvation is available for not just the us, but for them. Surely the work of evangelism and missions is fueled by a God who takes a person who is deemed to be cold and hostile and forever removed from the gospel to receive it with open arms and lives that are changed to declare that Jesus Christ is king of the world and whose kingdom will have no end. Mark here is saying, the one who is able to see and perceive and understand, can you see that the gospel is free and available to all? even the coldest of hearts, even the most jaded of sinners, even the most stubborn of people, even the people that you believe are lost causes, even maybe for you here today. Tired, weary, frustrated, and losing heart. Do you know that Christ is extending his grace to you today? Would you receive it? The Syrophoenician woman knows that even the smallest amount, even the crumbs of grace to an unworthy sinner is sufficient enough for her. But God delights in not just giving her crumbs, does he? He grants her more than that. He grants her her request. He reveals her place in God's kingdom, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, not just for the us, but also for them. For a people who were once not a people. For a people who were so far removed from God's grace that a miracle needed to happen to transform hearts. That God himself had to be incarnational with us 
to take on our sins and give us his righteousness. People like me, people like you. So, this woman hears the words of Christ and understands there is much more going on here than just a green frog story. Jesus is shaking down the paradigm of what it means to belong to the people of God. And for all who've known the grace of Christ here in this room, you can all attest to this. You've received more than just crumbs of God's grace, haven't you? You've received a feast. You've been given fellowship of the Lord, His body, the beauty of, of seeing God answer prayer, seeing the Lord use someone who is imperfect as yourself to bless the lives of others. You have seen the Lord who brings you to His banqueting table and that all are welcome who come in faith to see and taste and see that the Lord is good. My prayer and hope for, for each of us here today is that we understand this story and we see ourselves in it. In our sin, we are unworthy to come to God and approach His throne. We aren't even worthy to be called dogs apart from the family of God, but enemies deserving of His wrath and malice. And yet somehow miraculously, Christ in His death and resurrection redeems his enemies and makes us one who belong at the table. He looks at you and I, covered in all of our sin, and says, you are my child. Come and eat. Come and feast. We'll have an opportunity to do that together. But before we do that, can we go into a time of silent confession as we respond to God's word? Let's all just close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Let's take a moment to consider what Mark 7 is saying about us. And let's take this moment right now to go to a God who will freely give you His grace. It doesn't matter how you've categorized your sin. It doesn't matter how guilty you are in this moment. It doesn't matter how much shame you have felt. It doesn't even matter if you've, you've, you've done enough this week. You feel proud of who you are as a Christian. All that matters is that we confess our sins and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So with that hope, let us go to God in silent confession now.